This episode is brought to you by Boss Consulting HR and our downloadable products. We launched downloadable products in 2023, and I'm excited to share them with you through the Quirky HR podcast. If you head over to Boss Consulting HR and navigate to the downloadable section, we'll of course make sure that it's linked in the podcast description. There you can find resources for small business owners, HR departments of one, new business owners who are not quite sure where to go to get started, all for purchase. Our goal is to provide all the resources and tools for small business owners so that you can make sure that you are doing right by your employees and running your HR function appropriately. So with that, check them out over on Boss Consulting HR and we'll get right into the show. Welcome back to Quirky HR. If you've been a longtime listener and you listened to episode 35, Humanizing Human Capital with Stella Lupishore and Solange Cheris, I'm excited to welcome them back to the podcast. And we're going to be talking about AI demographic shifts and the status and nature of the workforce. So ladies, welcome back to Quirky HR. Great to be back, Dana. So glad to be in the space again with you. So for anyone that hasn't listened to the previous episode, can you tell our listenership about the book and what you do? All right. So the book is really um, an amalgamation of both Solange and I's perspective. I come at the human capital measurement world through the lens of design thinking and using analytics technology to make the worker experience better. So then they can uh, bring um, their best self so they can uh, create best products, innovate, whatever it is that we want um, or they aspire also to do. So both the organization and the individual wins. So launch comes at it through the business and financial lens because there is a bottom line, direct bottom line impact as a result of having that type of worker experience um, created. So we bring those two perspectives together in a way that allows practitioners, um, managers in a very accessible way, understand how to link those small seemingly changes in the worker experience to the business outcomes that matter to the organization because there is a direct relationship. There is uh, sometimes easy ways to make a disproportionately big impact for the organization. Can we talk about this idea of worker experience? Yeah. Because I think um, I think a lot of businesses, especially the ones that I work with, they believe that they create a good work environment. They give people a great, reliable paycheck and um, you know, people should be grateful <laughs> to work for them. And I think in the HR world, we're very much like, you, you know, you have to do more. You have to be more intentional about creating a space for employees that are is different. So can you elaborate a little bit more on that idea of worker experience? I'll start defining and then I'll let Solange layer the next um kind of the, the next set of complexity because it's not a one size definition, right? It is really the small and big 
touch points that an organization has with its workforce. Sometimes it can be as small as, hey, my Wi-Fi is not working and I don't have a stable connection, therefore I'm not able to work. Sometimes it's as big as, you know, what is the leadership of the company stands, what what is the, the position of the company's leadership on certain social issues, right? And then everything in between. And all of those touch points make an impression, a lasting sometimes, sometimes ignored at the first, and then over time it builds up, that creates that relationship between the worker and the employer brand. And it starts with you know, before you even become an employee, it starts with very early stages of discovering what the brand is all about. Do, do I consume their products? Do I respect the reputation in the market? Uh, do I believe in the mission or in the sustainability of this organization? Or maybe they came to my school when I was in high school and they had a really interesting and dynamic speaker talking about the company and that made the lasting impression. And over time, I wanted to come bring my talent to this. And then as you progress through your journey towards the employment, right, how you're treated and um, uh, how you feel you were handled during the recruitment and application process. Did you get a confirmation of uh, applying? Did you get a, a response when you followed up with the interviewer? Um, even when you didn't get the job, uh, uh, right? How were you treated in the process? How were you told? Now, all of those little moments create lasting impact. Even even after you quit, right? You still have a, an impression of whether or not you want to continue to stay a shareholder or you want to continue to buy products from the company. So creating that positive experience and looking at it through the lens of the worker, not through the lens of the HR processes, is, is the differentiating factor for uh, for thinking here. Excuse me. And I would add to that, um, really just to highlight um, the lens that both Stella and I bring to a, a topic. So Stella looks at it, excuse me, through, <laughs> went down the wrong pipe. Stella looks at it through the lens of the employee, through that design systems thinking lens, employee experience. What do we need to do to think about how to um, address the needs of the employee. And we're seeing, you know, we started this theme with employee voice. So I think of it in terms of employee agency, how much power they have to have their voices heard. Um, and we'll talk in a second about the demographic changes and also what's going on in the U.S. labor supply. And I think that's uh, one of the core um ways that we can explain the rise of the worker voice. Um, my point of view is we spend a lot of money on employees and there's uh, an increasing amount of pressure from stakeholders, investors, employees, customers, um, governance monitors, you know, people who are, are looking at how well you run your company, um, communities in which organizations work, uh, and also partners, trading partners, um, around transparency related to human capital. Um, and this transparency is important because it, it provides some insight into how well employees are being treated. But more importantly, and again, this is from my financial perspective, um, how effective and efficient human capital programs are in 
managing people and driving value through those people. So I know this is a podcast, but raise your hand if you've heard CEOs say people are our greatest asset, right? So everyone's out there raising their hands. All the time. Uh, And the truth of the matter is it's lip service because nobody until recently has really had a, a framework, a way to measure the impact of human capital, people and people programs on corporate financial outcomes. Really to say, if we're going to invest in people, we need a return on investment. We need to be able to measure that. Um, And let me just say one more thing before I turn it back to you guys on this topic. This is not just a fact. This is not a passing thing around trying to measure the return on investment in human capital, which is what our book really focuses on from that from my lens, right? Stella's lens is around the future of work and that experience, employee experience. And mine is, are you getting a bang for the buck for the money that you're investing in people? Um, This is not a passing fancy. This is a reality. And the reality comes essentially from two areas. The first is legislation that's already been passed in Europe. There's um, legislation that requires companies that trade their stock on European exchanges to disclose human capital performance and how much companies spend on human capital, which until now has been a trade secret. No one, you can't really see how much companies spend on HR and people because they're not required to disclose that in the United States. By 2025, large companies are going to have to comply with this new regulation, and it's it's going to be a big thing. The second big thing that's happening is in April of this year, we are anticipating that the SEC is going to disclose their um, is going to release their disclosure requirements for comment um, about human capital disclosure and. If you're a public company and you're traded in the U.S., um, you're going to have to disclose this information. And the big, the big um, disruptive shift is that companies are going to have to aggregate their cost and report it on their financial statements. So we will be able to see how much money companies are actually spending on people and relative to their total expense to see how much they're investing in people. And because of the data that they're disclosing, we will be able to calculate the return on investment in human capital. So are you making, are are your investments generating economic value creation or destroying economic value in organizations? So that's gonna be a real game changer. Um, And then the last thing, If you're a U.S. company that trades your shares on the European exchanges, you will be required to disclose that information. It's coming. You can't hide. You can run, but you can't hide. This is, I feel like this is very exciting because we do, we talk about it all the time in invest in your team members, but then there's like this undertone of golden parachutes and heavily inflated bonuses for executives and I see it on the the micro level in terms of pay transparency laws that are being passed, at least yeah. where I am. Yeah. And I'm I'm very I don't hate it. I I I think it's actually fantastic in terms of 
not only the worker experience and understanding what a position pays before getting into the process, but I love this idea that employers are going to be encouraged and some might even have to, by by regulation, look at the the financial impact of the dollars they're spending in payroll and training and development. Right. And and it's about providing the kinds of programs that support employees, right? Support that experience where they're going to want to stay and they're going to want to be productive. But the metrics, as we talk about in the book, help you figure out where to invest money. Don't invest money in programs that don't foster any good feelings in employees, right? So, and when I teach, my students come up with these ideas, right? Oh, let's put more money in training and development. I said, what's your evidence that that's the right place to spend money? Maybe you should be spending money someplace else, right? And the the other thing that I teach my students is you have to understand your employee demographics. And we can talk about that in a second. Um, If you look at the prevalent sort of surveys around what employees want or what employees value, they shift all the time and they shift because the demographics are shifting. So in 2017, the top three things that employees wanted were to work for a company with a great reputation, to feel heard and have emotional safety, and to be able to work with new technology. That was 2017. And that in 2017, the largest demographic in the marketplace were the millennials. 2023, the top three items, the top three things that employees value were interesting work, good work-life balance, and job security. And the predominant generation in the workforce today are Gen Xers. So you have to understand what your employees want to be able to engender that high level of work of employee experience that ultimately generates value for the organization and then be able to quantify that value in dollars and cents. Let's let's talk about the demographics of the workforce and this idea of of worker voice. I, you know, I hear from clients post pandemic, no one wants to work anymore. And they're making all these demands. They want higher compensation. Everyone works to work from home because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to be held accountable and they want to wear their sweatpants. And then CEOs are saying they're it's not good for their mental health. And, you know, there's so much, there's so many opinions. I won't even say data because I think many of those are just opinions, not based on data or fact. What what's actually happening with the demographic in the workplace? I think we think about demographics as this very clearly defined uh, with clear edges, groups, and segments of the population that have certain characteristics. And instead, I think we have to kind of reframe our thinking in terms of the life stage, right? You have a child, therefore it's much, much more uh, you need flexibility. You need a little bit more, um, uh, more ability to take time off during the day and work at night, and uh, maybe not come to the office every day just because you have responsibilities at home to care for. 
or you may have an ailing parent that will require the same type of caregiving responsibility and flexibility, but it's a different life stage. So when we design programs from a child perspective, we first of all, assume certain parameters. We say we're going to give parental leave, but why should only parents benefit from that? And why not anybody else who has caregiving responsibility uh, benefit from that? How can we make some of these programs and offerings, workplace offerings more inclusive? The other component of this is trusting people (laughs) and giving them the agency to decide what they need to be the most productive. Some days I need focused work and I don't need to spend an hour and a half each way in my commute time only to get to the office to be frustrated and be on Zoom calls all day long, right? There are certain types of work that are more benefiting from working from home versus, you know, you come to the office to socialize, to create bonds with your colleagues, to learn and absorb tacit knowledge, especially if you're earlier in your career and you do not know how things work in this organization. So giving a little bit more nuanced set of offerings and more flexibility to people will go a long way, as opposed to assuming that, you know, um, this generation doesn't want to work or making, you know, broad statements about a broad segment of the population that is never uniform and it's never the same uh, or doesn't have the same characteristics. Last thing I'm going to say is the jobs themselves, right? A lot of times we hear about bullshit jobs, right? <laughs> if we if we really carefully think about what needs to get done and question why why is it so, does that really need to be done? Do we really need uh, a paper form to be printed out and signed by somebody, or do we really need to, um, you know, do menial things that? can be automated or can be eliminated altogether, that may create that desire for people to actually do what they need to be doing. And we can talk a little bit about the impact of Gen AI on on the on how jobs are going to be redesigned in the future for knowledge workers, right? And even for non-knowledge working roles, we're already beginning to see, you know, robotics. And, and it's all very threatening, but it shouldn't be. Right. And let's talk about that in a second. What um, what to highlight what Stella said about um, really giving employees agency. Um, what in your mind, what's the normal working day? What are the hours of a normal working day? In the United States, it's typically yep. nine to five. Nine to five. OK. Does that work for a, a mother? <laughs> Not or, always. No. So why are we so rigid? Why are organizations so rigid in the way that they're designing the requirements for work that don't meet the needs, not just of working mothers, but of millennials and Gen Zs who don't, who think about, who frame the way that they work and their relationship to work differently. So I had a call the other day with a chief people officer for a restaurant uh, organization, fast food organization. And um, they have something like 80% turnover. And I said, is that across the board? And he goes, well, no, actually for our new acquisitions, we have between 150 and 200% turnover in the companies that we just acquired in our companies that have been around for a while, we're at about 70 to 80%. And I said, well, you know, before COVID, 
the National Restaurant Association said the average turnover is 60%. So I don't know what's going on post-COVID, but that seems a little high. And he goes, yeah, it's really high. And we have targets around it. And I said, well, do you have a, a, a specific job where you have lower turnover? And he goes, not a specific job, but a specific shift. The shift from 9.30 to 2.30 is our most stable shift. I said, is that the one that has the most mothers in it? And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, can't you redesign your shifts so that it appeals to different segments of the workforce? And he goes, well, we're working on it. But that kind of, um, you know, a, a new mindset that accommodates the employees versus making the employees accommodate a rigid way of working that may not even make any sense, right? So if they had to do an eight-hour shift, they can do a few hours in the morning and a few hours in the evening, right? And let people actually have their lives. Um, so it's just a, you know, a, a new way of responding to the worker needs because, and I don't remember if we said this, the workforce in the United States is shrinking. So the idea, the old idea was, well, if somebody quits, we'll just find somebody else to hire them. So Stella and I gave a presentation at a conference board event where there were about 300 people in the room, Stella. Yeah. And we had them raise their hand and we said, and they're all HR people. And we said, how many of you have open jobs that you are having difficulty filling? And like 90% of the people in the room raised their hand. So why make it hard on yourself? And, you know, maybe another time we can come back and talk about skills-based and how companies need to drop this crazy notion that you need a bachelor's degree to be able to do jobs that don't require bachelor's degrees. It's like things get institutionalized and they hurt the business instead of helping the business. So you guys talk a lot in your research about efficiency and productivity, and I was Pulling up a an article I read recently, University of Pittsburgh, um, Katz Graduate School of Business did a study and they um, determined that a lot of the return to office mandates are because of ego or controlling managers who want their workers back, right? And uh, one of my team members, I sent this to my team and and we started having a conversation about productivity because I think what a lot of organizations do is they don't actually understand and are on the same page about how they measure productivity. And I think a lot of times it's productivity is me seeing you from nine to five right. versus what what is the end goal? What is the end goal of this position, right? Can you guys speak to that a little bit about like why we have this antiquated view of productivity? So let me start and then I'll... Yeah it over to Stella. Um, so I, I agree with you that I think that there's something in returning to work because of control issues and because this of this belief that if I can watch you and you know that I'm watching you, you're going to be more productive. And there's actually a theory mm -hmm. about the watched, the watched worker is more productive um, but there are ways of watching people without having to actually be co-located with them, number one. And number two, productivity isn't about how busy you are. Productivity is about what you produce, how quickly you can produce results and the quality of the results that you're producing. The second thing, and then I'll give it to Stella, is 
I'm not sure that the return to work demand is purely driven by this control. I also think that underneath it is this expense concept, which is I pay for an office space and I pay every month for space to you for you to use. And if employees are not using the space, then it is a wasted expense. So there's this notion that if I'm going to pay money for office space, I want that office space to be utilized or else it feels like I'm throwing money away. But organizations need to think about the balance between the cost of real estate and the cost of replacing employees that are going to leave you if you force them to come back to the office full time and that doesn't work for them. And the time that a job is open is lost productivity for the organization. So there's utility analysis, which we talk a lot about in the book, cost benefit, figuring out what your cost is, figuring out what your benefit of accommodating employees in a different way. So is their productivity going to be higher, marginally higher than the cost of real estate? But real estate is a fixed cost. So CEOs and CFOs need to rationalize and justify that cost to their boards and their stakeholders. And I think that's a lot of the reason why we have this underutilized real estate. We have to use it. And that comes also with the push from municipalities to drive businesses to bring their people because they, the, the local small businesses are dependent on, you know, all of these uh, office workers going, you know, to lunches and consuming, you know, shopping around. So there is an economic pushback from the uh, yeah. But also, I think in addition to uh, what Solange was describing, I think there is also a reward structure that is so ingrained in how we manage the organization. So unless we change some of those principles, it's going to be very difficult to change the workplace practices and norms, right? Um, And to me, I was a road warrior all my life. I worked remotely or virtually. I knew when I needed to go into the office, I had the kind of the the autonomy to, uh, to manage my life around the times when I needed to go somewhere as a consultant and as, as uh, somebody who never had a, an assigned office per se to show up for. And I know all of the challenges, right? You need to have discipline and infrastructure to set up your office at home. You need to have a good, stable Wi-Fi access. You need to um, uh, uh, be able to, um, you know, rearrange the schedule should something happen. And therefore, you know, you you have babysitters, you have the support structure around you. So that's on me to get myself organized and be disciplined. On the organizational side, I knew that I needed to be very strategic in when I show up for what meetings. So I have that show, uh, you know, face value. So, you know, stakeholders who make decisions about my career, my uh, salary, my promotion, know who I am and have seen the job that I've done and can vouch for me in the right forums. So there is a lot of different kind of organizing your work in order to be able to be successful. And people are, it takes time. It took me a a very long time to get adopted and understand how things work when you're, um, when you're remote and virtual and hybrid. So therefore 
it's something that HR can help people to get themselves organized instead of trying to push the same type of, well, let's go back to the norm, the old norms, the way we did it before the pandemic, because the cat is out of the, the bag. I think we're not going to go, go back. And, and, and it requires yeah. trust. Mm-hmm. It's not trust on both sides, right? Or organizations need to trust employees and employees need to trust organizations. And I think that trust has really been eroded. And I don't know why it's been eroded. Maybe social media, maybe you know, whatever's going on politically is not engendering trust between organizations, between institutions and individuals. Um, And if you, you know, followed what was going on in Davos, there was a lot of talk about trust. It was one of the fundamental themes that came out was around trust. So how do organizations rebuild or build trust with employees? And that has a lot to do with the employee experience and has a lot to do with employee agency. So, um, you know, we're sort of skirting around Daniel Pink's work around um, mastery, autonomy, purpose that generates high levels of commitment and high levels of innovation and high levels of productivity in employees. And maybe we need to think again, about how do we create environments um, where there's organizational justice, where people feel like they're being treated fairly by the company, by their boss, by their peers, and get re-engaged in the work that they're doing to drive purpose. I think almost in a way, it it's, I think about this idea of trust I remember when I, my first class in my master's program, my professor said to me, the general assumption you need to have in HR to be a great HR practitioner is that you want to go into everything, assuming that people want to do well, having this assumption that people want to do well. And I see time and time again with leaders, managers, CEOs, presidents, all it takes is one employee to, you know, stab them in the back or make a poor decision or perform poorly. And then they develop this cynicism around employee performance that they apply to everybody. And so I look at this problem as like, I think that that's a management leadership problem in terms of training accountability and allowing leaders to continue to hold the entire workforce responsible for the behavior of one. And like, we, it's almost like a leadership maturity and that we're not mature enough to say, Sure, this was that experience with that employee, but the rest of my team is doing amazing. Any thoughts on that? Such an amazing point. And I think we really have not developed that muscle yet, because if you think about managing in a hybrid environment, what we've seen throughout the pandemic, um, how authentic a lot of leaders became and how more uh communicative and they showed up in their you know uh homes with kids running around so they showed the human side of them and suddenly after the pandemic is over everybody is trying to go back to what it was that you know divide between the worker line and the management and managing in a virtual environment requires different skills right it, it's more of a coach versus managing by observing it's more about you know, eliminating roadblock and helping you as a worker perform your best by helping you get access to the resources or resolving conflicts that you may have with peers. And we have not built the content and leadership development practices to train managers to manage that way, right? It's still, if you think about the performance structures and 
it's not about managing teams. It's more about, you know, managing individual performance and getting the most out of the people. So I think we have a long way to go and it's time to start thinking what that next generation of leaders need to look like on how they should adopt their behaviors. Yeah. And don't talk to me about teams because, you know, I'm just <laughs> completely monopolized because that's what my PhD is in. Um, we've never held leaders and leadership accountable. And I think that's the problem. Right. We've never asked companies to disclose information about leadership stability or leadership efficacy or leadership performance. The top of the house, right? Executive comp, they have some metrics there, but you only see the top five people pay and what the criteria is for their performance. But and it's usually financial and usually tied to the company and not about leadership, right? Because you assume. You've got good leadership skills if you're producing these outcomes. But we've never held um, accountable organizations to disclose information about how well their leaders lead, how long their leaders stay there, how much they invest in leadership development, and the efficacy of those leaders as measured by how long people who they manage stay with the company, the mobility of those employees to other groups because the manager has done such a great job of training them that now they they can advance or they can move laterally. Um, But those days are over because the ISO standard and the ESRS standards um, are going to ask companies to disclose information about that. So all of a sudden, we're going to have some insight into how leaders lead and how effective they are and how well they manage people to drive value creation for their for their own enterprises. So the days of being able to hide behind stuff, they're gone. And companies that start thinking about that now are going to be in a much better position when they have to start disclosing than the ones that are going to scramble in the 11th hour to say, oh my God, we're going to have to disclose this information. Do we even have any of it? Right? They won't be able to create this powerful narrative about we're measuring this and we're taking action and we're doing continual improvement for stakeholders to get value from the things that we do. I think about that concept of like starting now to look at that stuff because it'll be here before you. I think that's how we look at AI, right? Everyone was nervous about AI and they were worried it was going to take jobs and all of these other things. And so they kind of just kind of put it to the side. And it's here before you know it, right? We're not ready. A lot of employers, businesses are not ready for it. If I think about the pandemic and this idea of the great resignation, my concept on that is that employers didn't do enough work beforehand to ensure that they were an attractive employer to people. Um, There's so much to unpack here. And I feel like we could chat for 3000 hours about this topic. Um, But I just want to talk quickly about what's happening with the the decline of population, working population. For anyone practicing in HR or any leaders that might be listening, what do we need to know right now so that we can start to prepare and strategize and action plan for the future? Well, you start. Sure, I'll start. Um, as Solange said earlier, there are just few of working age population. We have the fertility rate declining. We have women 
deciding not to have as many children. And while everybody was expecting pandemic to be the baby boom again, it never happened. It was the baby bust. We see this not just in the US, uh, you know, China is declining uh, population. You know, now India is the most populous country in the world. We see a lot of mature economies experiencing this. I think we're on a trajectory that at least demographically speaking, the world population is expected to peak by uh, 2100, and then it's going to continue to decline. What the reality of that type of uh, uh, you know environment is, we will have fewer workers, we'll have a smaller tax base, we will have people living longer because of all of the advancements we're making in healthcare and, and well-being and longevity. Um, how are we going to support from tax perspective, from social perspective, uh, 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 social systems that are put in place, uh, this aging population, how are we going to keep them busy and deliver services and adapt services to their needs? So I think there's a lot of complex issues that are systemic, that require systemic changes. And we're not necessarily addressing them heads on, unfortunately. Um, the other thing we from work environment, we're not thinking about all the opportunities a lot of this automation that you you mentioned uh, are bringing, right? My favorite example was, um, so the former CEO of Chipotle, he started the new company that pretty much automated a lot of the uh, vegan burger uh, uh, production. <laughs> and it only, every store has only about three employees. And on one side, everybody's, well, isn't that cutting eroding jobs? On a flip side, I would say, who wants those jobs, right? Some of the jobs in fast food production should be automated because they are unsafe. They are not paying well. They're not um, aspire or desirable jobs. And the benefits of this type of um, automation also allows him to create really well-paying jobs that increases the worker stability. So yes, you're going to have three workers in the store, but those workers are going to stay and continue to delight the, the, the customers. You don't need to invest a lot in their upskilling and retraining all the time. So it's a perfect example of how automation and technology can make the work better for people, <laughs> but then also help organizations deal with some of this um, declining worker population. Shortages, exactly. Yeah. And Interesting. I think, I think AI is a perfect, or Gen AI is a perfect example of how it's um, coming exactly at the right time. So if you look at the studies from the World Economic Forum and McKinsey, they actually say that Gen AI and AI in general is not a work killer, not a job killer. It's a job creator. And in fact, over the next 10 years, net net, there's going to be about anywhere between 58 and 90 million jobs created because of AI. And when you're creating jobs globally and your workforce is not growing, that creates even more shortages in terms of talent. So we need to be smart. We need to work smart not work harder, right? Which is the mantra of the millennials. <laughs> I don't want to work hard. I want to work smart. Um, and there are all sorts of examples like JP Morgan Chase is using um, generative AI to understand learning and development and match 
people to courses that they need to take. So it's automated. IBM is using Gen AI to actually predict which workers are about to quit so that they can have an intervention and retain those workers. So there's all sorts of applications for Gen AI that we can talk about for a long time. Um, and I can also say that Stella and I are going to be working on a series of blog posts that unpack this idea of how to redesign a job, what, how you, how you should think about it, how you unpack the tasks, how you repackage those tasks and apply Gen AI to do some of that work to make work more interesting and more productive for workers. And when you have more interesting work for workers, they don't go anyplace. They'll stay because they like the work. And, you know, this, the generations that are in the workplace right now, as I said before, they want interesting work. They want work-life balance. They want to work with new technologies and they want job security. Give that to people and they'll stay with you. I I want those blog posts. I would like to read those blog posts. So please email me when they are ready to go because I think that they would be a great tool in my profession for my students for, this is incredible. You guys are amazing. Well, you you can, I'll, I'll say it because Stella's not jumping in, but you can, um, uh, what's the word that I, subscribe. You can subscribe to our newsletter by simply going to the book's website, www.humanizinghumancapital.com and sign up to be on the list. And we push out the newsletters every month. And when you go to our website, you can see our past newsletters. How many do we have, Stella? At least a year's worth, if not more. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm, I'm there. And we're always talking about this intersection that Stella and I represent around workers and workplace right? The future of work and worker experience. And then my side, which is how do you quantify the impact of the money that you're spending on workers and work and worker programs, employee programs? You guys are amazing. This is fantastic. I know you just said it, but just remind listeners again, where can they connect with both of you and find the book? We're both on LinkedIn and the website www.com humanizinghumancapital.com is the destination. And you can find our links and contact information there as well. Amazing. And, and luckily, there's only one Salon Shira and one Stella Lapouchore in LinkedIn. So you don't have to look too hard for us. <laughs> and I'll make sure that the website and your individual LinkedIn's, as well as that um, the Business Insider article, um, are all linked in the show notes. Stella and Solange, thank you guys so much again for joining Quirky HR. I'm so grateful to know you and have you be a resource for our listeners. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. I love being with you. Thanks. Thanks.